Good morning, everybody. My name is John Malella, and I'm your preacher today. You've been around for the last few weeks. We're working our way through the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings. And we're looking at the life story of the one whom Jews, Christians, and Muslims all call or all trace their heritage back to, Father Abraham. And we're going to pick the story up after God has established his covenant with Abraham. Ed talked about that last week and how God promised him, even though you and your wife are childless and you're old, you're going to have a son. And through that son, you will have so many descendants that you will not even be able to count them. There will be like the stars in the sky. And they're going to live on the land that I've promised. And God says, I will do these things. And Abraham believed it. And God says, because you believe it, you're righteous. Abraham, that spiritual bank account, I'm going to deposit righteousness there. And Abraham becomes what I like to call his God's covenant friend. Well, Abraham and Sarah seem to get a little bit anxious, a little bit impatient with the delivery of the promise because we see in chapter 16 of Genesis, they take a detour, and the name of the detour is Ishmael. Sarah still cannot have children, so through a surrogate, Sarah's maidservant, they have a son. But in God's eyes, Ishmael is not going to be the chosen one. So we're going to pay a visit today to Abraham and Sarah. Actually, we're going to stand back and watch as they get visited. And we're going to eavesdrop today. I know that could be a little bit impolite, but we're going to do that. We're going to eavesdrop on a conversation that Abraham is going to have with God. And it's a conversation that when I first read it, it rocked me. And I hope it rocks you too. And in that conversation, I think we get a glimpse of where we're being called to as a body. I think we get a glimpse of where we need to get to as a church. So let's pray. God, I am so aware this morning, I felt it driving in, I am so aware this morning of how inadequate I am to do this. I'm so aware of the flimsiness of the words. I'm so aware of the imperfection of the preparation. And yet I know, God, you're the God that takes imperfect things. You're the God that takes weakness and you move mountains. And you build things that will never be destroyed. So I pray that today, God, that you would you'd use what I offer you today, that you would strengthen us, you would feed us, You'd comfort us where we need comforting. And you ignite us as a church. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So we pick this up in Genesis 18. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1 where it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, so Abraham's neighborhood, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. I can relate to that the last week. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. So here's how it is. Abraham is home one day, and he's at his house, minding his own business, and it's hot. It's almost as hot as northern Virginia in July. And as he's sitting on the porch, rocking back and forth, and he's swatting the flies, trying to keep them off his beard, three men show up out of the blue. 
And Abraham, well, he comes from a culture that values hospitality, and actually they still do in the Middle East. He invites them in, and he says, If I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Well, very well, they answered. Do as you say. Who were these guys? And what was Abraham thinking about who they were? What was he thinking? Did he know? He did call one of them my Lord, but that could have been just respect. So right now, we're a little bit in the dark about who these visitors are. Who are these men? So picture Abraham, old man, hurrying around, telling his wife, Sarah, quick, fire up the oven. We're going to bake some bread. Well, you're going to bake some bread for these guys. And he goes to the herd and he picks out his best calf. Veal marsala for everybody. And he's running around making preparations. He brought curds and milk, the Bible goes on, and the calf that had been prepared, and he set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them. He was waiting on them. You ever get this in a restaurant? You're in the middle of your food and, you know, fresh pepper on that? Or do you need some grated cheese? I mean, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. And they ask a question. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Well, they're in the tent, he said. She's probably worn out from baking like 50 loaves of bread for these guys. And one of them said, I will surely return to you next year, this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. I think we finally get the answer to who these guys were, or at least who one of them is. At least one of them is God. Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. So basically, the boys are talking, and she's in the tent, probably resting. And the writer tells us, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. The writer reminds us this. These people were old, and I don't mean a little gray on the temples. I mean they were like great-grandparent old. And I know in Bible days, the ages of people were a little bit different than today because, I don't know, they ate all organic? I don't really know. And, you know, for Abraham, he's 99, and that's kind of like the new 60. But still, these are old people. And Sarah's getting the idea. I mean, she knows the factory is closed. And actually, for her, the factory was never open. So what does she do? What do you do when somebody tells you something that's ridiculous? What do you do? You laugh, which is what she did. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord, her husband, is old, will I now have this pleasure? But somebody hears her. Even though she does it to herself, she laughs to herself. Someone hears her. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Can you say the word awkward? This is awkward. 
She's busted. She is busted. She didn't even say anything. And this guy, God, knows what she was thinking. So what does she do? When, well, what do we do and most of the time when we're busted, when we're caught? Well, she lies. The Bible says, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. So God has just shown up in the flesh, and he has confirmed his promise to these people, clarified it, that you will have a son and it will be next year. So let me just move ahead in predicting what's going to happen next. Because when you read stories, a lot of times we use prediction, find out what's going to happen next. I almost imagine that what the Bible is going to do now is fast forward a year, and we're going to see this old lady pushing a stroller with the diaper bag, and that's going to be the promised son. But that's not how it happens. As we read on, we realize that the men in this story, or I should say the men who visited, are here for more than just lunch and to repeat a promise. They're on a mission. And it's not a good one. In verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Who's talking? Well, it's God. Who is he talking to? Here's what I think is happening here. God is convening his royal court. And Abraham, as his covenant friend, is present in the court. And God says, I'm going to do something, but before I do it, I have to tell you about it. The prophet Amos, writing a long time after this, says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. I'm going to read that again. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, don't we sometimes get in a place where we think God doesn't want to speak to us? Or we can't hear him? What I hear in this story and in this verse from Amos is God wants to speak to us. Now, some of us may be in a place where God's voice is a distant memory, or maybe we have no memory of it all, and we've resigned ourselves to the fact that, you know what, God may speak to other people, but he doesn't speak to me. All right, I think we need a winter story here. You probably remember a few years ago, we had a pretty nasty snowstorm. Was that Snowmageddon? I forget exactly. But I do remember, I just felt like I was shoveling snow like every 15 minutes. Do you remember that a few years ago? And the snow was collecting. Overnight this happened. The snow collected on top of our minivan. We're suburbanites. We have a minivan. And the snow uh, froze overnight on top of the minivan. So we're looking at about an inch and a half or two inches of ice on top of my car, on top of my minivan. And, you know, you can't drive around with that because it could slide off and, you know, cause an accident, break a windshield, 
and the car behind it. So John Malel, a good citizen that I am, I got up there on, on the minivan, kind of shimmied my way up, and I'm chipping away at the ice. And I'm chipping and I'm chipping, trying not to wreck the paint on the, not that anybody's going to see it up there, but, you know, try to take care of it. And I'm chipping it. And finally, I got a big piece about this big of ice, and I got it loose on top of the minivan. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. So then I pushed it. And I pushed it towards the front of the car. So I watched it slide toward the front of the car, and I watched it slide down the windshield, and I watched helplessly as it slid over my hood and completely sheared off my antenna. This is why I try not to do things around the house. <laughs> so, completely sheared off. I got no antenna on this car, but I still get some reception, obviously. I just learned to like static a little more. My poor, long-suffering wife, Lisa, said, well, why don't you get this thing fixed? So, you know, I didn't want to take the trouble, and, well, finally I did. So I got on eBay or something, I ordered a replacement antenna, and the thing came, it was about 15 bucks, and I go to try to install it, and I can't get the piece, the threaded piece, out of the assembly that's stuck in the car antenna, because it sheared it off completely. So then I left it for another few weeks, undaunted. So then by that time it started to rust, so then I got out the power tools, and I fired up the drill. So my neighbors one day looked out and they saw John Malella apparently trying to drill a hole through his car. So that didn't work. So I said, I said, all right, pull out all the stops. How much is it going to cost to get this thing fixed? So then I went to the car repair and I said, you know, what will it cost to fix this? I said, well, it'll be $137. So I said, I'll live with the static. Here's what I found, though. <laughs> in driving this thing, I found that songs would come in and out on the, re the reception. I'd get static sometimes more than others. But I found if I'm stopped in traffic and I'm getting reception and the song goes in and out with the static, I found that if I creep forward in the car and get close to the car in front of me, I can use that car as an antenna. <laughs> this, this is my life. Some of you have no antenna. Some of you, your antenna has been sheared off, and you can't get any reception. God wants to talk to you. For some of you, it's just too much trouble because you know that there's a cost. There's a cost in time. There's a cost in saturating yourself in this thing so you can learn God's idiom Learn his accent. So when he speaks, you know it. Some of you have no antenna. And you can't hear. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Then the Lord said, and here we get the reason for this. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So this is more of a, almost like a military mission than anything else. God is doing recon. He's doing reconnaissance. Now, does he need to go down and see things, or is it more of what Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says years later, when Moses says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense. 
a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I think that's what we have with God and two angels going down to see this. So what exactly is the sin of Sodom? What does Genesis say? What we need to do is we need to pay a small visit to Sodom. So I'm actually going to go over here. This is Sodom. We're going to fast forward to chapter 19. So what's going on? What's going to happen in chapter 19 when the two angels go down to, to Sodom to check things out? They actually run into Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. And they tell him, you know, we want to stay in the town square because we want to check things out. And Lot says, you don't want to do that. Here's why you don't want to do that. Because the neighborhood's a little sketchy. And the freaks come out at night. You don't want to do that. So they say, very well. They go to Lot's home. So Lot has them in his home for dinner. And he does like, almost like a little mini Abraham. He you know, serves them bread and everything. Does hospitality thing. And there's a knock at the door. And actually there's a pounding at the door. And they open the door, and it's every single male. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 19. If you want to go forward and read it, every single male in the city is outside, surrounding Lot's house, and they say, those two men that you have in there, bring them outside because we want to have our way with them. Yeah, exactly. So, what's going on? Obviously, they didn't get the memo about hospitality. Now, it's easy to say, well, here in Sodom, I really, I can't relate to that. I mean, I don't have like, you know, roving bands of sexual predators, you know, in my neighborhood. You know, if I have somebody over in my house and we're having dinner and there's a knock at the door, it's not a gang of sexual thugs. It's probably the guy that wants to trim my trees for 50 bucks. How do I relate to this? But, you know, the best way to interpret the Bible is let the Bible interpret itself. So I did a word search for Sodom in the rest of the Bible, and I was struck by something written by the prophet Ezekiel, who was writing about the 6th century B.C., and he's prophesying to Israel. And he says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, he says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did detestable things before me. I don't know about you, I prefer to hear about the roving band of thugs. This hits too close to home for me. Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. There's too much in that that I can relate to. We read on in verse 22 where it says, The men turned away and went towards Sodom. So now we're out of Sodom. We're back to Abraham's house on the hill there. But the two men went away. But the two men went. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now in most of your Bibles, there's a note there at the bottom. Sometimes the, the Hebrew text can be rendered differently into English. Sometimes there's a little variation based on scribal notations or just the way that it was hand-copied over the centuries. There's a, another reading of this. Abraham remains standing before the Lord. The other reading is, but the Lord remains standing before Abraham. Very old scribal tradition. 
And we see this reflected in some of our translations. For example, the New Living Translation translates uh, Genesis 18.22 as, The two other men went on towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham for a while. And in Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew professor out in California, his 2004 translation, he says in Genesis 18.22, And the men turned from there and went on towards Sodom, while the Lord was still standing before Abraham. But here's the point. Whether the text reads, the Lord stood before Abraham, or Abraham stood before the Lord, the point is the same. The two men left to angels, and God remained behind. Why? Why did he remain behind with Abraham? I think he was giving Abraham an opportunity. Abraham, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Abraham? What are you going to do, Abraham? What are you going to do? Abraham could have reacted to this a few different ways. I think he could have said, you know what, God, you're absolutely right. Rock on. These people have it coming. I know about this town. I know what goes on there. They have it coming. He could have been like Hezekiah, king of Israel in the 7th century. He was actually a pretty good king. But when the word came that Israel would be invaded by Babylon, you know what Hezekiah said to the prophet that told him that? He said, you know what? The word of the Lord is good. He thought to himself, that's not going to happen in my life. That's not going to affect me. But Abraham doesn't do that. Do you know what Abraham does? He does what I believe Gateway is called to do. He gets in God's face. Listen to this. Then Abraham approached him. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What's Abraham doing? He's getting God's face. Now, some of you probably don't like that term. It's aggressive, isn't it? Usually we use that as, hey, don't get in my face. Because what that shows is somebody is intentionally invading my space. I think that's exactly what Abraham is doing. He's getting in God's face. And what is he demonstrating? Do you notice what he does? He goes right to the character of God. This is faith in action. This is faith in action. He goes right to the character of God. I know you're good. I know you're good. You're not going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Faith believes God is good. Abraham goes right to the character of God. Let me clarify something here. Some of you might be thinking, you know, I don't know, when I've read the Bible, it seems like the righteous get punished with the wicked. You know, I mean, you, you read some of the stories, you know, the Philistines invade, Babylon invades, Assyria invades, and, you know, the righteous and the wicked kind of, they all get the bad treatment. So what's different here? I believe what's different here, and what Abraham understands is this is not a disciplinary action that's going to happen to Sodom. This is not a temporary condition out of which she will rise again. This is a final judgment. This is the final day for this city. It will not be rebuilt. 
And we see in this a small picture of the final judgment that the Bible talks about, that all of human history is going towards at the end, where God will make that division. And he will separate the sheep and the goats. The wheat and the weeds will be separated. Those that love him and those that don't. Those that know Christ and those that don't. Abraham knows this is the final judgment. And he says, far be it from you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And something extraordinary happens then. God answers. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Where did Abraham get 50 from, by the way? What, is that, that just pop in? 50, that's a good number. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah were actually five cities. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adna, Geboim, Zoar. It's five separate cities that he's looking at. Maybe Abraham is thinking, if, if we could get 10 in each city, maybe that'll be enough to retain the knowledge of the Lord. Maybe that could act as a seed to perhaps the knowledge of God could spread throughout those cities. So he said 50. Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? He's doing math. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? He says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. A lot of times we hear that phrase and it refers to something lowly, dust and ashes. You know what I think Abraham's getting at there? I think he is referring back to the creation account. We're in Genesis 2.7. It says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Almost as if he's saying, Yes, I am dust and ashes, but I'm your dust and ashes. You made me. I'm yours, God. 45. And God answers Abraham, If I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? Do you feel like it's getting kind of tedious? Do you feel like, Abraham, is this a flea market? Is this like seeing something you like on the rack and you know, bargaining the guy down? But he's at it. For the sake of 40, I'll not do it, the Lord says. Then Abraham says, verse 30, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold, he's at it. To speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? You know, some commentators think Abraham might be doing calculations in his head. Because he remembers his nephew Lot is there in, in Sodom. So he might be thinking, let's see, got Lot, Lot's wife, who's never named, by the way. He's got some kids, two sons, two daughters. I think they're married uh, or engaged. So maybe it's 10. Maybe that's the number. It's interesting. Could that be? I don't know what was in Abraham's head. But I'll ask this. If he was only after saving Lot and Lot's family, why not just say that to God? Why not just say, God, save my kin. Do what you want with the rest. Abraham is pleading for the city. He's pleading for the city. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham had returned home. What's going on here? 
Isn't this prayer? But it's more than that. This is bold prayer. This is prayer that expects an answer. This is an illustration of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16 when he says to believers in Christ, he says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Some translations say with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Three observations I just want to look at here in this story. What do we learn? How does it apply to us? As God's covenant friends, we have access to God's heavenly court. As God's covenant friends, we have access to God's heavenly court. And what does that mean? If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you're God's covenant friend. And what that means is you have access. You have access. I was thinking when I was growing up, that my father owned a lumber hardware store, and I would go work on Saturdays. I was a teenager, and I would go into the store, and I would go right behind the counter. Customers couldn't go behind the counter. I could. And I would go in the back where the lumber was stacked. Customers couldn't do that. I could. Because I had access. I had access. It was my family business. God invites us into his heavenly court for the family business. In Ephesians 2.16, it talks about how God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Not that we could be spectators, not that, oh, this is a good view, but that we might do business with him. As God's covenant friends, we have access to God's heavenly court. Second thing that caught me in this story is God tells the man or the woman who cares. Psalm 25, 14 says, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. The Lord confides. The Lord tells his secrets. This is a level of intimacy that I think basically some of us are afraid to get to with God, where God is going to tell us secrets. He's going to tell us stuff. Why would he tell us? Because we care. The Lord confides in, or God tells the man or the woman who cares. What keeps us from caring? I think it's the sins of Sodom. Arrogant, (laughs) overfed. We don't care. Don't care about the poor. It's about us. I see that in my own life. It keeps me from, from caring. But God tells the man or the woman who cares. God's going to tell us stuff. And can I say this? And, well, this isn't in the script, but I think it's, isn't it high time that the church recover the prophetic ministry of the New Testament? I think it is time. And I know some of you are from traditions where you don't do that stuff. <laughs> you know, you don't do the, the, the prophecy and God talking to you necessarily. But, look, folks, if you read the Bible, that's, I don't know any other way to read it. You know, this is a New Testament ministry. God wants to talk to his church. He wants to talk to his people. He will tell the man or the woman who cares. He will speak. The Lord confides in those who fear him. And when we go to God on behalf of others, the third point, they're going to get rescued. 
You're going to have a part to play. We sang about the Lamb who rescues us. We're going to have a part to play in that. When we go to God on behalf of others, they're going to get rescued. In the next chapter, fast forward to Sodom in Genesis 19.16. We read the men, the angels, they grabbed his hand, Lot's hand, and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. Yeah, Lot had to get pulled out. For the Lord was merciful to them. And in verse 29 it says, When God destroyed the cities of the plains... He remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities. Lot was saved because of Abraham. When we go to God on behalf of other people, they're going to get rescued. They're going to get rescued. Let me close with this. There were once four brothers. They lived in a city in the northeast, and their childhood was mixed. It had some happy moments, it had some good moments, but it was characterized by the deep confusion and chaos that comes from growing up in an alcoholic household. But when he was about 16 years old, the second of the brothers, brother number two, got born again. He got connected to God through Jesus Christ. He took Jesus at his word when Jesus said, I've come to bring you life. And he began to get in God's face on behalf of his family, the rest of the family. And none of the rest of the family had any connection to Jesus. Didn't know him and didn't want him. And he began to meet with other Christians. They met on a weekly basis. Small group of other believers. And every time they would meet, they would bring out this small wooden box. And they'd open the box. And inside the box were index cards. And on the index cards were written names of people. And they would pray for these people. And sometimes, brother number two would get so discouraged that his family was never going to come in. Within five years, brother number three gave his heart to Christ. Brother number four took a little bit longer. He was building his testimony. But he's finally in. Have you guessed? This is the story of my family. I'm brother number three. And I'm standing here today rescued one of God's covenant friends because my name was on one of those cards. And because this small group of people, they got in God's face for me. Now I know for some of you, the idea of getting in God's face, you feel like you don't have the, you don't have the strength for it. I don't have the vigor for it. I'm, some of you I know, you, can, you, you could barely stand up spiritually. You're broken. And others of you, every time you hear something, every time you hear an invitation, you hear it as a demand. And it's just another thing to do. Can I say if you're in that spot, you need to get in God's face. That's the place of healing for you. That's the place of restoration for you. That's where you need to be. Others of you, Your intent is broken. You need to get it fixed. You need to get it fixed because God wants to speak to you. As a church, we live in a culture that, based on what Ezekiel said, it looks like Sodom to me. You read the paper and you read about the outrageous things, but what Ezekiel is talking about is more, that looks more like suburban northern Virginia to me.
And we're weighed down with those things. And we need to ask for forgiveness and realize we're invited. We have access. We have access. And with that access comes opportunity to change things by the power of God. And I believe that's where we're called to as a congregation. So a couple things before I get out of here. One is, there are going to be people down here. They're ready to pray for you. So whatever you're dealing with today or something struck you and you need to do some business with God or you need to say, I want to write somebody's name on a card and bring it before God, that's the place to be. And for all of us, a little bit of homework. Julie, many of you don't know Julie. Julie organizes prayer meetings. Sorry to embarrass you, Julie. What happens at the prayer meetings? We get in God's face on behalf of Gateway and on behalf of our families, on behalf of other people. So come to the next prayer meeting. And we'll teach each other. How how do you do this? What does it look like? Oh, and by the way, Julie's last name is Abraham. Abraham.